7. As in the long reign of Henry VIII the changes are less violent, but have more purpose and significance. His age is marked by a steady increase in the national power at home and abroad, by the entrance of the Reformation, by a side door, and by the final separation of England from all ecclesiastical bondage in Parliament's famous act of supremacy. In previous reigns chivalry and the old feudal system had practically been banished, now monasticism, the third medieval institution with its mixed evil and good, received its death blow in the wholesale suppression of the monasteries and the removal of abbots from the House of Lords, notwithstanding the evil character of the kin and the hypocrisy of proclaiming such a creature the head of any church or the defender of any faith. We acquiesce silently in Stubbs' declaration that the world owes some of its greatest debts to men from whose memory the world recoils, while England during this period was in constant political strife, yet rising slowly, like the spiral flight of an eagle, to heights of national greatness. Intellectually it moved forward with bewildering rapidity. Printing was brought to England by Caxton, 1476 and for the first time in history it was possible for a book or an idea to reach the whole nation. Schools and universities were established in place of the old monasteries, Greek ideas and Greek culture came to England in the Renaissance, and man's spiritual freedom was proclaimed in the Reformation. The great names of the period are numerous and significant, but literature is strangely silent. Probably the very turmoil of the age prevented any literary development, for literature is one of the arts of peace. It requires quiet and meditation rather than activity, and the stirring life of the Renaissance had first to be lived before it could express itself in the new literature of the Elizabethan period. The revival of learning. The revival of learning denotes, in its broadest sense, that gradual enlightenment of the human mind after the darkness of the Middle Ages. The names Renaissance and Humanism, which are often applied to the same movement, have properly a narrower significance. The term Renaissance though used by many writers to denote the whole transition from the Middle Ages to the modern world, is more correctly applied to the revival of art resulting from the discovery and imitation of classic models in the 14th and 15th centuries. Humanism applies to the revival of classic literature, and was so called by its leaders, following the example of Petrarch, because they held that the study of the classics, literary humaniors, i.e. the more human writings, rather than the old theology, was the best means of promoting the largest human interests. We use the term revival of learning to cover the whole movement, whose essence was, according to Lamartine, that man discovered himself and the universe, and, according to Taine, that man, so long blinded, had suddenly opened his eyes and seen. We shall understand this better if we remember that in the Middle Ages man's whole world consisted of the narrow Mediterranean and the nations that clustered about it, and that this little world seemed bounded by impassable barriers, as if God had said to their sailors, Hitherto shalt thou come, but no farther. Man's mind also was bounded by the same narrow lines. His culture as measured by the great deductive system of scholasticism consisted not in discovery but rather in accepting certain principles and traditions established by divine and ecclesiastical authority as the basis of all truth. These were his pillars of Hercules, his mental and spiritual bounds that he must not pass, and within these, like a child playing with leopard blocks, he proceeded to build his intellectual system. Only as we remember their limitations can we appreciate the heroism of these toilers of the Middle Ages, giants in intellect, yet playing with children's toys, ignorant of the laws and forces of the universe, 
while debating the essence and locomotion of angels, eager to learn, yet forbidden to enter fresh fields in the right of free exploration and the joy of individual discovery. The revival stirred these men as the voyages of Diego and Columbus stirred the mariners of the Mediterranean. First came the sciences and inventions of the Arabs, making their way slowly against the prejudice of the authorities, and opening men's eyes to the unexplored realms of nature. Then came the flood of Greek literature which the new art of printing carried swiftly to every school in Europe, revealing a new world of poetry and philosophy. Scholars flocked to the universities, as adventurers to the new world of America, and there the old authority received a death blow. Truth only was authority, to search for truth everywhere. As men sought for new lands and gold and the fountain of youth, that was the new spirit which awoke in Europe with the revival of learning. I I. Literature of the revival The hundred and fifty years of the revival period are singularly destitute of good literature. Men's minds were too much occupied with religious and political changes and with the rapid enlargement of the mental horizon to find time for that peace and leisure which are essential for literary results. Perhaps, also, the floods of newly discovered classics, which occupied scholars and the new printing presses alike, were by their very power and abundance a discouragement of native talent. Roger Osham 1515-1568, a famous classical scholar, who published a book called Toxophilus School of Shooting in 1545, expresses in his preface, or, apology, a very widespread dissatisfaction over the neglect of native literature when he says, and as for you Latin or Greek tongue, everything is so excellently done in them, that none can do better, in the English tongue contrary, everything in a manner so meanly, both for the matter and handling it, that no man can do worse, on the continent, also, this new interest in the classics served to check the growth of native literatures, in Italy especially, for a full century after the brilliant age of Dante and Petrarch, no great literature was produced, and the Italian language itself seemed to go backward, the truth is that these great writers were, like Chaucer, far in advance of their age, and that the medieval mind was too narrow, too scantily furnished with ideas to produce a varied literature. The 15th century was an age of preparation, of learning the beginnings of science, and of getting acquainted with the great ideals, the stern law, the profound philosophy, the suggestive mythology, and the noble poetry of the Greeks and Romans. So the mind was furnished with ideas for a new literature. With the exception of Malory's Mort Berther which is still medieval in spirit the student will find little of interest in the literature of this period. We give here a brief summary of the men and the books most worthy of remembrance, but for the real literature of the Renaissance one must go forward a century and a half to the age of Elizabeth. The two greatest books which appeared in England during this period are undoubtedly Erasmus's Praise of Folly and Comium Mori and More's Utopia, the famous Kingdom of Nowhere, both were written in Latin but were speedily translated into all European languages. The praise of folly is like a song of victory for the new learning, which had driven away vice, ignorance, and superstition. The three foes of humanity. It was published in 1511 after the accession of Henry VII. Folly is represented as donning cap and bells and mounting a pulpit, where the vice and cruelty of kings, the selfishness and ignorance of the clergy, and the foolish standards of education are satirized without mercy. Moore's Utopia, published in 1516, is a powerful and original study of social conditions, and like anything which had ever appeared in any literature, in our own day we have seen its influence in Bellamy's Looking Backward, an enormously successful book, 
which recently set people to thinking of the unnecessary cruelty of modern social conditions. More learns from a sailor, one of Amerigo Vespucci's companions, of the wonderful kingdom of nowhere, in which all questions of labor, government, society, and religion have been easily settled by simple justice and common sense. In this utopia we find for the first time, as the foundations of civilized society, be three great words, liberty, fraternity, equality, which retain their inspiration through all the violence of the French Revolution and which are still the unrealized ideal of every free government. As the hearers of this wonderful country more wonders why, after fifteen centuries of Christianity, his own land is so little civilized, and as we read the book today we ask ourselves the same question. The splendid dream is still far from being realized, yet it seems as if any nation could become utopia in a single generation. So simple and just are the requirements, greater than either of these books, in its influence upon the common people, is Tyndall's translation of the New Testament 1525, which fixed a standard of good English, and at the same time brought that standard not only to scholars but to the homes of the common people. Tyndall made his translation from the original Greek and later translated parts of the Old Testament from the Hebrew. Much of Tyndall's work was included in Cranmer's Bible, known also as the Great Bible, in 1539, and was read in every parish church in England. It was the foundation for the authorized version, which appeared nearly a century later and became the standard for the whole English-speaking race. Wyatt and Surrey, in 1557 appeared probably the first printed collection of miscellaneous English poems known as Tall's Miscellany. It contained the work of the so-called courtly makers, or poets, which had hitherto circulated in manuscript form for the benefit of the court. About half of these poems were the work of Sir Thomas Wyatt 1503-1542 and of Henry Howard, Earl of Surrey 1517-1547. Both together wrote amorous sonnets modeled after the Italians, introducing a new verse form which, although very difficult, has been a favorite ever since with our English poets. Surrey is noted, not for any especial word or for originality of his own poems, but rather for his translation of two books of Virgil, in Strange Meter. The Strange Meter was the blank verse, which had never before appeared in English. The chief literary work of these two men, therefore, is to introduce the sonnet and the blank verse, one the most dainty, the other the most flexible and characteristic form of English poetry which in the hands of Shakespeare and Milton were used to make the world's masterpieces. Mallory's Mort Durther, the greatest English work of this period, measured by its effect on subsequent literature, is undoubtedly the Mort Durther, a collection of the Arthurian romances told in simple and vivid prose, of Sir Thomas Mallory, the author. Caxton in his introduction says that he was a knight, and completed his work in 1470, 15 years before Caxton printed it. The record adds that he was the servant of Yeza both by day and night. Beyond that we know little except what may be inferred from the splendid work itself. Malara groups the legends about the central idea of the search for the Holy Grail. Though many of the stories, like Tristram and Isolde, are purely pagan, Malara treats them all in such a way as to preserve the whole spirit of medieval Christianity as it has been preserved in no other work. It was to Malory rather than to Laomon or to the early French writers that Shakespeare and his contemporaries turned for their material, and in our own age he has supplied Tennyson and Matthew Arnold and Swinburne and Morris with the inspiration for the idols of the king and the 
Death of Tristram, and the other exquisite poems which center about Arthur and the knights of his round table. In subject matter the book belongs to the medieval age, but Malory himself, with his desire to preserve the literary monuments of the past, belongs to the Renaissance, and he deserves our lasting gratitude for attempting to preserve the legends and poetry of Britain at a time when scholars were chiefly busy with the classics of Greece and Rome. As the Arthurian legends are one of the great recurring motives of English literature, Malory's work should be better known. His stories may be and should be told to every child as part of his literary inheritance. Then Malory may be read for his style and his English prose and his expression of the medieval spirit. And then the stories may be read again, in Tennyson's, Idols, to show how those exquisite old fancies appeal to the minds of our modern poets. Summary of the Revival of Learning Period This transition period is at first one of decline from the age of Chaucer, and then of intellectual preparation for the age of Elizabeth. For a century and a half after Chaucer not a single great English work appeared, and the general standard of literature was very low. There are three chief causes to account for this, one the long war with France and the civil wars of the Roses distracted attention from books and poetry, and destroyed of ruin many noble English families who had been friends and patrons of literature, to the Reformation in the latter part of the period filled men's minds with religious questions. 3. The revival of learning set scholars and literary men to an eager study of the classics, rather than to the creation of native literature. Historically the age is noticeable for its intellectual progress, for the introduction of printing, for the discovery of America, for the beginning of the Reformation, and for the growth of political power among the common people. In our study we have noted, 1. The revival of learning, what it was, and the significance of the terms humanism and renaissance, to three influential literary works, Erasmus's Praise of Folly, Moore's Utopia, and Tyndall's translation of the New Testament, three Wyatt and Surrey, and the so-called courtly makers or poets, for Malory's Mort d'Arthur, a collection of the Arthurian legends in English prose. The miracle and mystery plays were the most popular form of entertainment in this age, but we have reserved them for special study in connection with the rise of the drama. In the following chapter, Selections for Reading, Malora's Mort Derthner, Selections, in Athenaeum Press Series, etc. It is interesting to read Tennyson's passing of Arthur in connection with Malora's account, Utopia, in Arbor's reprints, Temple Classics, King's Classics, etc. Selections from Wyatt, Surrey, etc. In Manley's English Poetry or Ward's English Poets, Tall's Miscellany, in Arbor's reprints, Morris and Skeet's Specimens of Early English, Volume 3 has good selections from this period, bibliography, history, textbook, Montgomery, pages 150-208, or Cheney, pages 264-328, Green, Chapter 6, Trail, Gardener, Fruit, etc. Special works, Denton's England in the 15th century, Flowers the Century of Sir Thomas More, The Household of Sir Thomas More, in King's Classics, Green's Town Life in the 15th century, Field's Introduction to the Study of the Renaissance, Einstein's The Italian Renaissance in England, Seabom's The Oxford Reformers Erasmus, Moore, etc. Literature, General Works, Jusserand, Ten Brink, Mentos Characteristics of English Poets, Special Works, Saints Bearbreeze Elizabethan Literature, Malory's Mort Derthner, edited by Sommer, the same by Gollum's Temple Classics, Lanier's The Boys King Arthur, Moore's Utopia, in Temple Classics. King's Classics, etc., Roper's Life of Sir Thomas More, in King's Classics, 
Temple Classics, etc., Ashram Schoolmaster, in Arbor's English reprints, Poems of Wyatt and Surrey, in English reprints and Bell's Aldine Poets, Simons's Sir Thomas Wyatt and his poems, Allen's selections from Erasmus, Jusserand's romance of a king's life James I of Scotland contains extracts and an admirable criticism of the king's queer. Suggestive questions. 1. The 15th century in English literature is sometimes called, the age of arrest. Can you explain why? What causes account for the lack of great literature in this period? Why should the ruin of noble families at this time seriously affect our literature? Can you recall anything from the Anglo-Saxon period to justify your opinion? 2. What is meant by humanism? What was the first effect of the study of Greek and Latin classics upon our literature? What excellent literary purposes did the classics serve in later periods? 3. What are the chief benefits to literature of the discovery of printing? What effect on civilization has the multiplication of books? 4. Describe Moore's Utopia. Do you know any modern books like it? Why should any impractical scheme of progress be still called utopian? 5. What work of this period had the greatest effect on the English language? Explain why. 6. What was the chief literary influence exerted by Wyatt and Surrey? Do you know any later poets who made use of the verse forms which they introduced? 7. Which of Malora's stories do you like best? Where did these stories originate? Have they any historical foundation? What two great elements did Nalara combine in his work? What is the importance of his book to later English literature? Compare Tennyson's Idols of the King and Nalara's stories with regard to material, expression, and interest. Note the marked resemblances and differences between the more Earth and the Nibelung and Lied. Chronology History Literature 1413. Henry V. 1415. Battle of Agincourt 1422. Henry V. I. 1470. Malora's Mort D. Arthur 1428. Siege of Orleans. Joan of Orc 1474. C. Caxton. At Bruges. 1453. End of Hundred Years War Prince the First Book in 1455-1485. War of Roses English. The Requel of the 1461. Edward I. V. Histories of Treway 1483. Richard I. I. 1477. First Book Printed in England 1485. Henry VII 1485, Mort Arthur printed by Caxton 1492, Columbus discovers America 1499, call it, Erasmus, and more 1509, Henry VIII bring the new learning to Oxford 1509, Erasmus's praise of folly 1516, Moore's Utopia 1525, Tydale's New Testament 1534, Act of Supremacy. The 1530s the introduction of the Reformation accomplished sonnet and blank verse by Wyatt and Surrey 1539. The Great Bible 1547. Edward V.I. 1553. Mary 1557. Tall's Miscellany 1558. Elizabeth Chapter V.I. The Age of Elizabeth 1550-1620I History of the Period Political Summary. In the Age of Elizabeth all doubt seems to vanish from English history. After the reigns of Edward and Mary with defeat and humiliation abroad and persecutions and rebellion at home. The accession of a popular sovereign was like the sunrise after a long night. And, in Milton's words, we suddenly see England, a noble and puissant nation, rousing herself, like a strong man after sleep, and shaking her invincible locks, with the Queen's character, a strange mingling of frivolity and strength which reminds one of that iron image with feet of clay. We have nothing whatever to do. 
it is the national life that concerns the literary student, since even a beginner must notice that any great development of the national life is invariably associated with a development of the national literature. It is enough for our purpose, therefore, to point out two facts, that Elizabeth, with all her vanity and inconsistency, steadily loved England and England's greatness, and that she inspired all her people with the unbounded patriotism which exults in Shakespeare, and with the personal devotion which finds a voice in the fairy queen. Under her administration the English national life progressed by gigantic leaps rather than by slow historical process and English literature reached the very highest point of its development. It is possible to indicate only a few general characteristics of this great age which had a direct bearing upon its literature. Characteristics of the Elizabethan Age The most characteristic feature of the age was the comparative religious tolerance, which was due largely to the Queen's influence. The frightful excesses of the religious war known as the Thirty Years' War on the Continent found no parallel in England. Upon her accession Elizabeth found the whole kingdom divided against itself, the north was largely Catholic, while the southern counties were as strongly Protestant. Scotland had followed the Reformation in its own intense way, while Ireland remained true to its old religious traditions, and both countries were openly rebellious. The court, made up of both parties, witnessed the rival intrigues of those who sought to gain the royal favor. It was due partly to the intense absorption of men's minds in religious questions that the preceding century, though an age of advancing learning, produced scarcely any literature worthy of the name. Elizabeth favored both religious parties, and presently the world saw with amazement Catholics and Protestants acting together as trusted counselors of a great sovereign. The defeat of the Spanish Armada established the Reformation as a fact in England and at the same time united all Englishmen in a magnificent national enthusiasm. For the first time since the Reformation began, the fundamental question of religious toleration seemed to be settled, and the mind of man, freed from religious fears and persecutions, turned with a great creative impulse to other forms of activity. It is partly from this new freedom of the mind that the age of Elizabeth received its great literary stimulus. 2. It was an age of comparative social contentment. In strong contrast with the days of Langland, the rapid increase of manufacturing towns gave employment to thousands who had before been idle and discontented. Increasing trade brought enormous wealth to England, and this wealth was shared to this extent, at least, that for the first time some systematic care for the needy was attempted. Parishes were made responsible for their own poor, and the wealthy were taxed to support them or give them employment. The increase of wealth, the improvement in living, the opportunities for labor, the new social content these also are factors which help to account for the new literary activity. 3. It is an age of dreams, of adventure, of abounded enthusiasm springing from the new lands of fabulous riches revealed by English explorers. Drake sails around the world, shaping the mighty course which English colonizers shall follow through the centuries, and presently the young philosopher Bacon is saying confidently, I have taken all knowledge for my province. The mind must search farther than the eye, with new, rich lands open to the sight. The imagination must create new forms to people the new worlds. Hacklett's famous collection of voyages, and purchase, his pilgrimage, were even more stimulating to the English imagination than to the English acquisitiveness. While her explorers search the new world for the fountain of youth, her poets are creating literary works that are young forever. Marston writes, Why, man! All their dripping pens are pure gold. The prisoners they take are fettered in gold, 
and as for rubies and diamonds, they go forth on holy days and gather hem by the seashore to hang on their children's coats. This comes nearer to being a description of Shakespeare's poetry than of the Indians in Virginia. Prospero, in the Tempest, with his control over the mighty powers and harmonies of nature, is only the literary dream of that science which had just begun to grapple with the forces of the universe. Cabot, Drake, Frobisher, Gilbert, Raleigh, Willoughby, Hawkins, a score of explorers reveal a new earth to men's eyes, and instantly literature creates a new heaven to match it. So dreams and deeds increase side by side, and the dream is ever greater than the deed. That is the meaning of literature. For, to sum up, the age of Elizabeth was a time of intellectual liberty, of growing intelligence and comfort among all classes, of unbounded patriotism, and of peace at home and abroad. For a parallel we must go back to the age of Pericles in Athens, or of Augustus in Rome, or go forward a little to the magnificent court of Louis XIV, when Corneille, Racine, and Moliere brought the drama in France to the point where Marlowe, Shakespeare, and Johnson had left it in England half a century earlier. Such an age of great thought and great action, appealing to the eyes as well as to the imagination and intellect, finds but one adequate literary expression, neither poetry nor the story can express the whole man, his thought, feeling, action, and the resulting character, hence in the age of Elizabeth literature turned instinctively to the drama and brought it rapidly to the highest stage of its development, aye aye. The non-dramatic poets of the Elizabethan age Edmund Spencer 1550-1599 Cuddy, Pierce, I have piturst so long with pain that all my noden reeds been rent and war, and my poor muse hath spent her spared store, yet little good hath got, and much less gain, such pleasance makes the grasshopper so poor, and leg so laid when winter doth her strain, the dapper ditties that I want devise, to feed youth's fancy, and the flocking fry delg much what I the bet for thee, they haunt the pleasure, I a slender prize, I beat the bush, the birds to them do fly, what good thereof to cutty can arise, Pierce cutty, the praise is better than the price, the glory eat much greater than the gain, shepherd's calendar, October in these words, with their sorrowful suggestion of dear, Spencer reveals his own heart, unconsciously perhaps, as no biographer could possibly do, his life and work seem to center about three great influences, summed up in three names, Cambridge, where he grew acquainted with the classics and the Italian poets, London, where he experienced the glamour and the disappointment of court life, and Ireland, which steeped him in the beauty and imagery of old Celtic poetry and first gave him leisure to write his masterpiece, Life, of Spencer's early life and parentage we know little, except that he was born in East Smithfield, near the Tower of London, and was poor. His education began at the Merchant Taylor's School in London and was continued in Cambridge, where as a poor sizar and fag for wealthy students he earned a scant living. Here in the glorious world that only a poor scholar knows how to create for himself he read the classics, made acquaintance with the great Italian poets, and wrote numberless little poems of his own. Though Chaucer was his beloved master, his ambition was not to rival the Canterbury Tales, but rather to express the dream of English chivalry much as Ariosto had done for Italy in Orlando Furioso. After leaving Cambridge 1576 Spencer went to the north of England, on some unknown word or quest. Here his chief occupation was to fall in love and to record his melancholy over the lost Rosalind in the shepherd's calendar. Upon his friend Harvey's advice he came to London, bringing his poems, and here he met Lester, 
then at the height of royal favor, and the latter took him to live at Leicester House. Here he finished the shepherd's calendar, and here he met Sidney and all the queen's favorites. The court was full of intrigues, lying and flattery, and Spencer's opinion of his own uncomfortable position is best expressed in a few lines from Mother Hubbard's tale, Full Little Knowest Thou, that has not tried, what Hellet Island ensuing long to bide, to lose good days, that might be better spent, to waste long nights in pensive discontent, to fret thy soul with crosses and with cares, to eat thy heart through comfortless despairs, to fawn, to crouch, to wait, to ride, to run, to spend, to give, to want, to be undone. In 1580, through Lester's influence, Spencer, who was utterly weary of his dependent position, was made secretary to Lord Grey, the Queen's deputy in Ireland, and the third period of his life began. He accompanied his chief through one campaign of savage brutality in putting down an Irish rebellion, and was given an immense estate with the castle of Kilcommon, in Munster, which had been confiscated from Earl Desmond, one of the Irish leaders, his life here, where according to the terms of his grant he must reside as an English settler, he regarded as lonely exile, my luckless lot, that banished head myself, like white forlore, into that waste, where I was quite forgot. It is interesting to note here a gentle poet's view of the unhappy island. After nearly 16 years' residence he wrote his view of the state of Ireland 1596, his only prose work, in which he submits a plan for pacifying the oppressed and rebellious people. This was to bring a huge force of cavalry and infantry into the country, give the Irish a brief time to submit, and after that to hunt them down like wild beasts. He calculated that cold, famine, and sickness would help the work of the sword, and that after the rebels had been well hounded for two winters the following summer would find the country peaceful. This plan, from the poet of harmony and beauty, was somewhat milder than the usual treatment of a brave people whose offense was that they loved liberty and religion. Strange as it may seem, the view was considered most statesmanlike, and was excellently well received in England, in Kilcommon, surrounded by great natural beauty. Spencer finished the first three books of the Fairy Queen. In 1589 Raleigh visited him, heard the poem with enthusiasm, hurried the poet off to London, and presented him to Elizabeth. The first three books met with instant success when published and were acclaimed as the greatest work in the English language. A yearly pension of £50 was conferred by Elizabeth, but rarely paid, and the poet turned back to exile, that island to Ireland again, soon after his.